Welcome to the Education and Training Foundation Inclusive Leadership Podcast, which explores how we lead our colleges so that everyone is given a sense of belonging and is listened to and feels heard. People shine in the light of being paid attention to, being shown that they matter and are respected. All of our communities of staff and students need to feel this regardless of their background, class, race, gender, culture, religion, sexuality and disability. No one should be made to feel ashamed. In inclusive organisations, we do not treat people the same. We treat them with the dignity and respect they want to be treated by. We offer equality of opportunity to all. We will explore how current leaders are creating inclusive environments, how they lead with sensibility and are self-aware and know the impact they have on their organisations. They understand their own prejudices. Whilst no one has all the answers, we will explore the questions of how to change and adapt to meet the needs of everyone and do it by listening to frontline staff and students and acting upon what we hear. I'm really delighted to welcome you to today's podcast where we're considering well-being and mental health and how different they are depending upon your gender, ethnicity, culture and or disability. We're going to review how we can set up cultures which will recognise and support all these differences to improve everybody's health, well-being, including their mental health. And I'm delighted to have three guests today. Lynette Leith, who is the Vice Principal Curriculum and Skills at Hull College. Jade Pondure, Specialist Resource-Based Development Officer at the National Autistic Society and Stuart Rimmer, Principal and Chief Executive of East Coast College. Thank you very much, the three of you, for taking up your time this afternoon. Our first question is going to go to all of you, which is, how do you differentiate health and well-being to recognise the difference between the genders and ethnicities in your organisation? And then how do you look after your own health and well-being? Lynette, would you like to start? Of course. Thank you, Sally. I'll start with the first question. It's a really important question, but it's also really big because I do think we as a sector are perhaps at the beginning of really starting to understand and recognise, first of all, disparities that exist amongst those protected characteristics, so not just in relation to gender and ethnicities, but to understand really deeply what health and well-being means and then how it differs amongst those different groups of people and cultures and life experiences. So have we cracked that? Have we got great pearls of wisdom to share and very well-developed methods of addressing it? I don't think we have. Are we on a journey and are we doing things which we hope will have an impact I think we are and I think in the first instance for us 
it was about going back to what I just said at the beginning, really recognising, first of all, what inclusion really means and what the inclusion or the EDI landscape looks like for our staff and students, and then how that shows up in their experiences, their lived experiences and what they might bring into college or the workplace and how we respond to that and we are talking about staff right now and I'll come back to that but just to sort of put some context in it I was having a discussion very similar to this but about students with one of my heads of area yesterday who's thinking really deeply about this kind of stuff and we were talking about deprivation because actually there were massive health inequalities in deprivation and then you know you can dig further into that when you look at different protected characteristics but it was it's it's not really about recognizing that challenge as an excuse, glass ceiling in any way, but recognising it as a challenge. And actually those young people need something different, right? How you design curriculum, how you design pedagogy, how you think about the experiences they're going to have. We are now thinking differently. And it is the same principle with staff. And that's where we are. We're at the beginning of that conversation to think about how we recognise the um, needs in terms of health and wellbeing in the workplace for different groups of staff and you know in in sort of the quickest way uh, possible that we've been able to some of the things that are quite uh, typical I guess in the sector or things that are not particularly groundbreaking but just first of all offering health and well-being as part of professional development is something that we've started to do over the last year hadn't always been the case before so that's actually been well received so on those professional development days, having things that are generally just about health and well-being and that are um, therapeutic and that are something different and it's not just all work focus. But I think there's a lot more work for us to do and across the sector to really dissect and understand the difference that exists and how that might show up in health and well-being and therefore what kind of services and support you offer. What about your own health and well-being though, Lynette? How do you make sure that you are practising what you preach? I probably could do better, but I do really try. And actually, on a really personal note, I was going through an experience that really challenged my mental health. It was at the beginning of lockdown. My dad, unfortunately, got COVID and he was really, really poorly. And then going into lockdown and being in that lockdown environment really pushed me mentally. And it meant that I experienced something and then... For me, Sally, how I think about and um, manage my mental health or health and well-being better, first of all, being healthy and making that effort to, you know, get fresh air and to not have back-to-back meetings or create that kind of environment. Because like you say, that leads by example, getting out a little bit more and ensuring that outside of work, I live a healthy lifestyle, so exercise, food, that kind of thing. But um, I guess one of the most fundamental changes for me over the last couple of years has been how I view resilience. Because I think that's a word that we use a lot. And prior to that experience, I mentioned to you, Sally, resilience meant something different to me than what it does today. And that's really enabled me to take care of my health and well-being much, much better. So prior to that experience that I had, to me, resilience was about, you know, thick skin and broad shoulders and being able to, to deal with lots of things and being able to handle a really busy work and personal life. But today, resilience to me actually means being able to say no, being able to take care of myself better, being able to manage that um, boundary between 
doing the things that I love and enjoy, which are personal and professional. You know, I enjoy my job and there are parts of it where you constantly want to say yes, because it's something that you really value and want to contribute to. But I've learned that actually that doesn't take care of my mental health and well-being. So aside from those things, Sally, like I say, around eating well, keeping healthy, exercising, fresh air, all of those things that are really fundamental for us, for me, it's how I view resilience that has been a real changer over the last sort of 18 months. Thank you, Lynette. So much more now looking after yourself as well as looking after everybody else. Yeah, and and what that looking after actually means, what it really means. I'm going to go and ask Stuart the same question. So how do you differentiate in your institution health and well-being to recognise those differences in gender and ethnicity and then let's look at how you also look after your own well-being and health. There's a few things around that. It's such a big, expansive question. And in doing that, I think it just simply recognises as a sector we're in a, a stage, maybe you know the first stage, maybe the second stage of, of a development around that. And I was really pleased that you mentioned cultures, plural, in your intro, actually, Sally, because as we know, colleges are actually pretty tribal places. There's a whole series of tribes that exist within colleges because of the diverse nature of the work, the different student groups that we work with, the different technical and vocational traditions that people come from. And I think because of that, it, it's very difficult to, to finish up with this kind of... I think that one of the errors would be if we made some sort of homogenous culture, because that leads us to a place where we try and place homogenous or, or fairly generic interventions. So, you know, my, my gosh, we've had, we've had some success in doing some of that, but I think we're at a stage where we need to now start to think about in a more sophisticated way. Uh, my learning sort of kind of post-lockdown was around colleges more than ever are not insulated from the outside world. We are completely influenced by everything that kind of runs in parallel. And so I think we're part of, albeit the vanguard of the kind of inclusivity debate. We've had some success in my college in practical kind of terms um, because certainly not necessarily around ethnicity, but certainly around gender, we've sort of seen a higher prevalence of uh, female staff seeking help, for example, and being open to help, being open to participate in some of the campaigns or sort of interventions we're, we're running sort of greater amount of interest. There's kind of some practical uh, work we've done, particularly around things like menopause, uh, menopause awareness, but also some, some helpful flexibilities we've, we've introduced. But also, I think the other thing is that it plays out in my college, actually, our demographic of a, of a staff is uh, we're a slightly older staff uh, as a base and we, uh, we've got a female gender bias and, and so with that comes the need to directly respond to, to staff groups. I'm also conscious though the areas of work where I think we've not done bits of work and we're yet to be bold enough to step back into the territory is around groups that are, I'm going to call them emergent marginalised groups. So people who, who it's, it might be tricky territory that we've not got back into. So, so for example, um, you know, the place of the white working class male and how do we respond not just to students but to staff where people are starting to report that they're feeling marginalised in a kind of societal way uh, but that's pretty tr- tricky territory and now is great at stepping into tricky territory but I'm not sure we're yet equipped as a sector to with the language skills or the or the the actual cognitive skills to, to get into that that space so I've probably ducked the question more than answered it for you in terms of my own health and well-being, I've been pretty open around this in public and I've done lots of practical things like Lynette around resilience 
I think self-awareness and developing self-awareness is probably the golden thread. The more, the more you know about yourself, the more likely you are to know when you're stepping into tricky territory. I think working within a or starting to develop cultures that help psychological safety, and that includes, you know, from my own psychological safety uh, with boards and uh, senior teams, I think is really, really helpful. And I'm starting to see the concept of rest massively differently than I did a few years ago. Uh, that might be just because I'm starting to get a bit older and um, can't quite run at the pace I used to anymore. But uh, there's something there about individuals have to find their their own sort of resilience prescription, their own well-being prescription. But I think, if, you know, if I dare give a bit of advice to anybody, it's about being very proactive in understanding what works for you uh, and where you are in terms of your own psychological landscape. And I suppose being, the final thing would be being aware that it changes. It's not a, a one-size-fits-all. It's not a one-size uh, solution. for. It, it's going to change over time. It's going to change over careers, uh, which seem to be getting longer and longer. Thank you, Stuart. Jade, what about, uh, I mean, unlike the other two, you're not working uh, directly in a college. You're obviously working for a national organisation looking at a very specific uh, issue of autism. How does your organisation differentiate and ensure health and well-being for all of its staff based on gender, ethnicity and also disability? And what do you do to keep fit and healthy? I think in my organisation, especially like before Christmas, there's been kind of a drive to set up almost like groups. So we've got a disability group that we're setting up and they did a whole talk for Disability History Month and that I was one of the speakers along with a couple of other people. But then that was really good for kind of raising awareness and talking about what comes with disability, for example. And then they've set up groups for LGBTQIA+. And I think there needs to be maybe more work around ethnicity, but I haven't actually met many people in my organisation who aren't white, to be fair. I think I've maybe met one since I've started. So I think that there's a long way to go on that part, but they're trying. And within those groups, there's a lot of support. There's regular meetings. There's there's a lot of links to like resources and HR. And the head of HR is really involved in trying to push that and make sure that everyone's supported, which is really nice. And also just being open, even like on social media like LinkedIn and other places about the staff that do work for the National Autistic Society and how they manage both their health and their well-being I feel like they're very open about that compared to other organizations I've worked for before people talk about it a lot more and it doesn't feel like a taboo topic in the same way it maybe has in the past which is really nice for looking after my own health and well-being I try to go to the gym like four or five days a week before work In my lunch break, I try to take my dog out for a walk because that breaks up the day, which is quite nice. But then also I've made the decision to only work four days a week so I could have that work-to-life balance because I was struggling before. And I also have regular counselling just to maintain like a good well-being. It's not that I need it all the time, but just to have that just in case I need a top-up, which I find quite helpful. Why the four days and has it actually made a difference, do you think, to your well-being? It's made such a difference. I don't know if it's maybe because of being autistic, but I find I get burnt out quite quickly. And I find having that extra day just somehow gives me that extra time to rest or to do the things I might want to do that would then tire me out on the weekend. And it's the perfect balance, I think, for me at the moment. It's an interesting one for employers. When people ask us for four days, you normally think it's because of childcare arrangements. I think it's a really good challenge to all of us to think well for people's 
well-being and mental health, maybe four days is perfect. So I think that's something that we need to consider. Thank you all for that. I'm going to go on with another question to Lynette, which has been posed to me, is that when we're leaders, we treat mental health and well-being as one blob. Close friends of mine who are black have actually challenged me on that, saying that the whole way black people are treated by medical profession, their well-being and mental health is not the same as white people. Therefore, we need to see this differently. What would you say to that, Lynette? Is that your experience? Is it my personal experience? No, thankfully. However, is it something that I have witnessed, discussed, heard and even see the impacts of it is my dad is black my dad's Jamaican I mentioned the experience when he had COVID and I saw that play out during that time and he has quite a long-standing psychiatric diagnosis since I was a little girl so it's something that I've been raised around and I've seen it consistently throughout my dad's experience in health and Also, a lack of representation in some areas. Many years ago, when my dad was first diagnosed, there was a very distinct lack of representation. And owing to the experiences that it had, he was less inclined to then take up the medical support and help that he needed, which meant that his diagnosis became worse. And that actually shows up when you look at national data also. In the UK, rates of psychiatric disorders are higher in black and Asian men, but actually take up of health services to support that is lower. And then consider some of the challenges around racism and discrimination in those services. Not only perpetuates what I've just discussed in you know black and Asian ethnic minority groups that may not access the services that are available, that is also evidence to further exasperate mental health. And that shows up generally, even if somebody of a black or Asian ethnic minority group may not have a serious diagnosis, they do experience poorer mental health due to racism and discrimination. So I I do think it's something that happens. It's unfortunately part of our society, but it's something that our society experience. But importantly, I think it's something that we as employers and leaders ought to be talking more about and recognising. Because again, if that lived experience is different, how that then shows up and what the mental health and wellbeing support in the workplace should look and feel like for those individuals will be different. And I think it might have been Stuart who mentioned earlier, you know, it is different. It's a personal experience for everybody, isn't it? And it also, you know, just a little bit like what what Jade said and the question you asked Sally about that fourth day at work and do we really listen to why people need that and actually accept if that's what that individual is saying and their um, experiences and their view is that's what they need, then we ought to be listening to that. But I do think we've got a way to go in recognising, first of all, that sort of honest discourse and narrative around our sector that we do have these issues. We have challenges of racial discrimination and not just uh, discrimination across racial lines, but all of protected characteristics, so LGBTQ, you know, male, female, there are challenges. And, and it is first about recognising that honestly and putting that on the table, that it's a challenge to be able to see it through the um, personal perspective and through that lens to find solutions that are actually meaningful for the individual. I would agree with you. It's really important for lots of leaders, particularly if you're white 
middle-aged, middle-class, there's almost a fear of raising the conversation. I don't want to be misinterpreted. But in a way, what you're saying is it's so important. We cannot leave it. We must bring it out and have the conversation. Absolutely, Sally. And, you know, I can understand that in a space where we've perhaps not stepped into this sea, if you like, and swam in this big sea of something that feels challenging, confronting, complicated and difficult, then it's scary to do so. And it's a, it's a bit like that whole thing around team management and what Stuart's mentioned. You know, it is easier to work in a homogenous environment sometimes, isn't it? Because there are less broader perspectives and it's less challenging. But if we're, you know, we are taking this seriously and for those who are, we absolutely have to be brave and supportive and be, um, you know, help each other in that. Because just the fact that we're here in this podcast talking to you about this, Sally, and we're having this conversation in the sector, we all should take as a really good thing. When Stuart was talking, I was actually thinking, I'll drop Stuart a line after this because I won't mind having a chat about those things that he's doing. And we need to do that more. You know, we need to support each other to open more doors so that we can step into that space and do something about it. And ultimately, you know, I'm a firm believer, and I'm sure you would all agree and listeners would, that ultimately we all want to work in a happy, productive, inclusive environment. And we treat each other with respect and we are kind human beings. And if we look at it through that perspective of um, wanting to create fairer societies, fairer environments, it's perhaps less scary but it is something that we have to continue in that sort of Pandora's box. We, we have to, if we're going to address it in a meaningful way and see change. And that's in respect of race, um, LGBTQ, gender. You know, when you consider that male suicide is, you know, seven times more likely, is it 70 percent of suicides in the UK? Well, let's move on to that. Thanks very much, Lynette, because you, you opened the genie on, on the, you know, where are white men on this? But there is certainly an issue in male suicides. And how do we as colleges create environments where we spot it? I I know in the institution I was responsible for, we had a young man just out of the blue kill himself and it rocked the whole organisation. And it was the guilt that nobody knew and nobody was aware, yet the staff and his classmates all thought they knew him. But actually, nobody did. So any answers to help? There's a few thoughts around that. One is that the most recent, in fact, yet to be published, AOC uh, mental health data has just been been gathered. And that sadly points to a net year on year, two years ago since we last did the data, increase of colleges experiencing both suicidal ideation and, and suicide attempt by students. That's really, really sad. And, and difficult. What I do think, though, is, is really helpful is that because colleges have proactively created cultures, environments that are more awake to issues such as suicide and far more awake to the whole broad spectrum of um, well-being issues, mental health issues, so that you finish up with early intervention. And most of the data proves out that actually the earlier intervention then the less likely someone is to finish up in a, in a place of absolute crisis. You know, we certainly experienced that with, in my course, with staff. And some staff, it's about how creating a, a sort of broad culture of people being able to uh, transparently and openly talk about issues of mental health and broader well-being and their own challenges to be able to get some active support 
on things both for themselves as individual within the, the team and work that they they do and, and organizationally so that's kind of something that we've focused on over a number of years and i said right at the start i think we're in in a series of phases in, in fe i think we're certainly past the first phase i remember starting some of this conversation about 10 years ago now and everyone kind of thought you were a bit either silly or mad to be talking about uh, mental health and well-being and happiness uh, and, and it's felt quite radical and it doesn't anymore and that's a really good thing we've i think we've moved past some of that initial uh, stage i think we've moved a little bit now past the concepts of stigma that's attached with mental health the idea that mental health and well-being services in colleges uh, are there i think is now become an expectation and that's that's entirely right and proper it is but it, it's starting to become that and, I love being challenged on my own initiatives as a as a principal. I, I think that that's when I it's a test of knowing when something's working. I remember being stopped in the corridor a couple of years ago by my staff who said, "Oh, but can you have a look at this system for me, Stuart? Because you know it's really affecting my mental health." And I walked away thinking, "Great, not that the system wasn't working for that individual, but great that someone had obviously picked up the that philosophy of understanding uh, mental health is is good, but it comes with some baggage." that sort of level of expectation and raising that expectation because you've got to meet expectations from people. And I think that's becoming increasingly difficult. And I mentioned boundaries and I certainly feel over the last 24 months that the boundaries between work and home have just evaporated. They've just disappeared entirely. People are bringing in more and more and more into, into college life and perhaps taking more and more home as well. Uh, and so there's a, a real interesting space to debate, I think, now where, as, as leaders of how much support can we provide? Where does, the, I suppose, the, the boundary live? For some groups of staff that are not participating in, in this kind of debate, it's partly sometimes because there's a, almost a feeling of nanny state. It's saying, well, my well-being is nothing to do with you. I just work for you. Uh, and I think we have to sort of really think about those sort of groups. Like I say, they're almost the emergently marginalised groups that don't tend to, to get into that work. The other thing around the next phase of mental health and well-being, if we start to look forward a little bit, is really the, the, the sort of pure inclusive leadership space, which says we'll meet everyone at their point of need, which is not necessarily about identifying certain groups, although I think that could be helpful. But it's that real sort of understanding that space and identity is, is pretty fluid these days, that there's kind of intersectionality of, that happens, that different geographies create a, a plurality of of cultures, plural, uh, and within that, then you start to mix home and work. But within that, that's where we have to start meeting people at individual spaces, and that's a really tricky thing organisationally to do. Um, and I've genuinely not cracked it. I've no idea what that next phase might look like, but I, I feel like that's where we need to kind of push. If we do it, though, on the plus side, through a, uh, some thinking around values and using college values, I think we're on good, safe ground. I think if we do it with a culture of curiosity, which underpins all great leadership i think we're in safe territory i think ultimately it's about culture belonging and if we start and finish with that we might you know as i'm one of those dusty white old middle class males i'm just learning to swim in that sea that you you mentioned earlier but if we do it from a, a place of good heart and a cultural belonging i think we'll be okay and i would agree with you Stuart, that everybody must feel at that sense of belonging. You can't knock some people out to introduce other people. Everybody must have a sense of belonging. And actually, that's a human requirement. We're hardwired to want to belong. 
and I'd agree about the curiosity. I think it's also about education. I know I trained as a mental health ambassador and I did it as a role model. Not that I thought I would learn much because I thought I knew a lot about mental health. But I thought if I became an ambassador as the CEO, other people would think it was important. And I was um, very pleasantly shocked about how much I learned when I thought I'd done quite a lot previously. So I think you never know enough. So I think that constant education and keeping yourself aware is so important. Jade, the question I'd like to ask you is how does your organisation make you feel enabled? They've been really supportive, literally from when I had my interview and they accepted me for the job role. I had like a long conversation with my manager before starting about what my needs were. They were just open to learning and wanting to know how they can help me. And that's just starting on that kind of foot was really, really important. So they've made like reasonable adjustments of equipment. I'm able to work from home. When I do travel to visit schools that we support, they pay for my travel to go and see those schools, whether I need a taxi or I want to drive or get the train. I have meetings every two weeks with my manager to kind of see where I'm at and to make sure that I'm okay. And I can always like message to ask to speak to her if I need to. But also when I go and visit the schools, I've kind of built these really like open relationships. And although they're not part of the National Autistic Society, they've got um, a centre that we've helped them to build. We've kind of got these open relationships where we can talk about race and disability. And I can talk about my own lived experience. And that's quite nice. And use that to also help the students that we're supporting through those centres and I think that's really important too and also um, I have an assistance dog which is I guess a little bit different than most people Um, and from the get-go they've been so supportive and we've made arrangements so that once he's fully trained he'll be able to come to work with me which is really nice and there's a lot of risk assessments and things that kind of have to go into place because I go to building sites I go to different schools and it's it's not straightforward, but they've been so great about that, which is lovely. We'll all want to work for them. They sound like a very, very good employer. One of the things that has always, in a way, troubled me, because I think disability is often the least thought about by organisations, because it's also, the for all the reasons you've explained, you've really got to absolutely meet individual need. And with disability, for some people, comes a lot of pain depending on what their disability is, they're in pain and severe pain affects performance. Is that something that's discussed, Jade, when you go out? Are people aware of the pain that some people are in, their pain management and how organisations can absolutely help and improve performance? I think because I'm quite open, people are comfortable enough to ask questions and then I've been able to explain so One of my disabilities is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is quite rare. Most people haven't heard of it, but it affects my joints. I get a lot of fatigue and tiredness and being able to kind of break that down and explain different fat parts that it kind of affects me and and what that means. I think that really helps. And just being open about it just has kind of opened up other conversations. And even with other people who maybe don't have a diagnosis, but then think actually I might have that. just Just being open and confident about it has really helped other people, I think. Um, because I think there is a lot of shame, even just around things like autism and stuff. People don't want to disclose because they think, oh, it, they might get fired or they might not be fit to work or lots of things like that. And it's 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 challenging. So where possible, I try to, I guess, 
be open about it and I think that's maybe come from working in colleges myself previously I worked with a lot of students with disabilities and sometimes they weren't always proud to have a disability and I felt if I could be proud then that can help them and it shows them that they can have a future where they can work and they can have I guess a a normal life if that's what they want to call it but I think that's really important. Thank you very much, Jade. Can I thank all three of you for your honesty and your comments and also role modelling, practising what you're preaching. And I just hope people listen and understand the importance of all the things that we've talked about. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you to all our listeners. And I hope that this podcast has inspired you to go back to your organisations and make a difference. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. This programme is delivered by Association of Colleges, commissioned by the Education and Training Foundation on behalf of the Department for Education.